This is Mike Levitt, a co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to season one of The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency-based framework for health value, the ACLC is working with healthcare organizations all over the country to create the workforce of tomorrow. Come join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Daniel, I just have to say, wow, we had the almost amazing podcast episode this week with Carrie Coombs. Yep, I have to agree. She is just the foremost expert in my mind on everything from senior housing to geriatric rehab, Medicare ACOs, and how to care for a a geriatric population, hospice, home care, collaboration in the post-acute care continuum. I don't know who better we could have asked to join us for all these wide-ranging topics this week. You know, she definitely comes at this with a a unique paradigm, and I love her backstory, how she kind of discovered this area of healthcare by meeting with senior women to make custom dresses. And there's, I'll let her tell the story. It's a really neat story, but, uh, but it's such a unique start of a journey and her paradigms that she introduces just, make you shift how you think about seniors and 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 I think will really make a difference to healthcare executives and frontline workers on their interactions and uh, on their planning and the programs that they develop around caring for seniors. Why don't we just hand it over to Carrie and have her tell us about her journey in this race to value. Hi Carrie, welcome to Race to Value. It is a pleasure to have you on today's podcast. Uh, it is actually my absolute pleasure to be here in COVID times talking with friends about an area that I believe in and am passionate about. It's like the best way to get together without getting together, right? Oh, so, I completely agree. This is an are. amazing format. <laughs> there are so many different areas that you can speak to. We're real excited uh, to have you on as a guest this week. Yeah, I look at your background. I mean, you have such great accomplishment in different areas of expertise with the geriatric population, understanding you know care models in the geriatric space and senior housing, home care, hospice, palliative care. You understand innately what it takes to deliver care 
for patients with Alzheimer's and dementia. I, I want to know more about your journey. Can you tell us a little bit more about your passion for why you went into geriatric care and, and really how that fits into your overall perspective in terms of health value? Well, I'm not one of those people that went to school and said, this is what I'm going to do. You know, I didn't get to do the full-on journey and delve into business and say, this is where I'm going to end up. I'm going to work in this emerging healthcare market. I am one of those people that it found me. And it was by way of many years ago, as I uh, kind of preface some of my education talks, a hundred years ago, I was in this little industry called tech. And I was working in the tech industry and doing very well and happy with the journey that I was on. I knew it was yet an emerging market. And then life happened and I had my first child and that child started to grow up and I had some time at home, but I wanted to still do something that kept my brain busy. And I know that many of the professional women can relate to that. It's not that you want to neglect the family, but you do have to have your own self. And myself was kind of in this space of kiddo was going off to preschool and I needed something to keep the, the synapses firing. And I had a friend colleague who was working with a professional woman who was designing a clothing line. I mean, this is how far removed I am from tech, right? I'm going into some sort of a clothing line. But interestingly enough, she was developing a clothing line that was targeted towards senior women. And she needed somebody in the marketing space who could do some interviewing, hold some discussions with subject partners. Uh, talk to elderly women about their cares, concerns, just understand them better as she built out this design. And so kiddo would go off to school and then I would go out literally knocking on doors of these places called assisted living. Now I walked into these doors and I didn't see really anybody getting assistance. I saw living, but I didn't quite see assistance. So I started talking with senior women. And I'm talking the most amazing population of females that in my lifetime, and at that time, I would think I was in my early, I was in my late 20s, early 30s, and I was having conversations with these women who had lived. And I don't mean that they were old. I mean, they'd lived. They had had families and careers, and they had done amazing things by way of the world. They had run charities. They have climbed mountains. They'd ran races. They had developed, and they were just... I was a sponge to the amount of information that these individuals had. And so here I was, quote, talking about this clothing line that was specific to them. And they were just so happy to be seen. They were so happy that an individual outside of this realm of senior living had come in to ask them questions and get their information. So long story, long story. In talking with these wonderful women, I quickly fell in love with this space called senior living and started my own journey into that space. And that's really where I got my start in, in geriatrics. And from there, it built on home health and then advisement, placement, elder law, memory care, getting further education into the space, sitting with quality geriatricians and learning from them, working on new projects and project management. And then as the world of healthcare continued to develop, more education, delving into ACOs and bundles, and the space of just advising and mentoring new and upcoming individuals as they try to make the space of senior living, housing, and healthcare just that much better. So it all started literally with a thread. It's a great story. Thanks for sharing that, Carrie. I can really relate to this because uh, I'll just share a little 
but personally, my wife is a nurse and she's been in the geriatric space and working in nursing homes and long-term acute care and, and things of that nature. And, and when she works, she wants to have these conversations and build these relationships with these patients. And she oftentimes gets chastised, let's say, by her employer because there's not time for that in a fee-for-service environment. But to me, it just innately feels like these are the things that matter to the patients and they're going to be more helpful to their health in many ways. Can you maybe elaborate on that a little bit more and what you see happening and you know, how the value realm might be able to impact and, and leverage that type of added time for relationships? Well, the irony here, Daniel, somebody telling your wonderful, caring specialist wife that there's not time for a patient who is running out of time. I mean, the irony in that message of not giving our elderly population the most concentrated amount of our daily practice, they are the only individuals on this earth that are very aware that their clock is almost done. And yet we consistently short them on our attention and the value of what they have to say. And to me, that's a bigger crime than anything else. Because if you do nothing in this world, but listen to your patient, you will find out where you need to make changes in their plan of treatment and their everyday care that can at least make them adherent to what you're asking them to do. But if you're not taking the time to listen, you're never going to get the results you want. Thanks for that, Carrie. I, I, I think that's a really important point. And I'm going to stay on the theme of my wife here for a minute and, and talk a little bit about this end of life care and this, and this ticking clock that you say that the seniors are more acutely aware of. In healthcare, we, we deal with so many problems that are fixable. And so I think it becomes challenging when we as a system and as people, we run into the two things that are not fixable, which are aging and dying. It seems like we have a lot of difficulty around these conversations. And the medical system, you know, industrial complex often inflicts therapies on these terminally ill patients that actually shortens their lives or increases suffering before death. And, and circling back to my wife and my family, her father actually recently passed in the last year and a half. And, uh, you know, I mentioned she's a nurse and she and I both understand these principles of end of life care. And together we tried to persuade her father and her mom that the care he was receiving was actually harmful and potentially shortening his life in, in our view. It was a difficult time and a, a difficult conversation. And in the last few weeks of his life, he had a, an unnecessary surgery that although it was meant to alleviate pain, it actually added to it. You know, Brent James calls this type of care rescue care. And we know that when we look at Medicare, that so much is spent on rescue care in the end of life. While it's difficult to know exactly which of that spending was futile at the time of the spending or, or the time of the treatments, we definitely know that all of the spending and all of the care is not necessarily delivering value and helping patients. And it's not helping them die with dignity, respect, with in the circumstances and surrounded by loved ones that they might prefer. And it's not necessarily improving their outcomes or, or their, the care they're receiving. Can you help us understand how we should be thinking of this issue of healthcare spending at the end of life and you know, how a value system could improve that? 
I can give you a firsthand account, okay? As an individual who went through medical processes on my own journey of healing, I encountered more people that were very gifted in their area of medicine. And I'm so thankful that they were willing to share their time and opinions with me. But we started every visit off with one, them asking me the same questions that I had told the 16 other people before them. And they didn't read my chart. One thing that anybody who knows me well enough to know is, is that the last thing I ever want to be is irrelevant, ignored, especially when I'm coming to you for a valued opinion and guidance. So if we're walking into a, a healthcare situation and the patient feels like they are a number and a file and a file unread at that, you're really setting the stage for a dismissive engagement. The best thing that I think medicine could do for our elderly patients is going back to your wife's point, more time, know that patient. When a patient crosses the threshold of a need of care that's truly impacting their days on this earth, it's my opinion that the first meeting that they have should be of length. There should be a carve out of time to know that patient. What is important to them? Who is important to them? Where did they imagine that their life would go if they had unlimited time? Do they feel they've been on this earth long enough and experienced the things that are of value to them and that right now quality is much more important than quantity? Or are they one of our younger patients and quantity is what they're after and they will do what it takes to get that? The discussions about who our patient is and what is important to them is so much more important than what it is that is ailing them at this time. We must know where that individual chooses to go to better understand how to get them there. And that goes into that whole social space, right? We're, we're talking about um, meeting with an oncologist or meeting with a specialist in memory care, Parkinson's, diabetes, anything that could ail one of our elderly clients, patients. But what if we knew them as individuals first? What if they actually had to meet with a medical social worker or a psychologist or an individual to create a platform of who is this patient? That the doctor, the specialist, the physician must, this is where I get really on the high horse here, they must read that before they're allowed to meet with the patient and discuss medical options. If you don't know, what your patient is capable of contributing as part of their healthcare plan, then everything you put in front of them is a risk and you have no idea who's going to be on the riskier side of that equation. And it seems like it's almost, Carrie, something that should just be common sense within medicine to have a patient-centered care model that truly honors the patient and their wishes and, and having time to spend with them bringing in other facets of their life and really engaging them in a way to truly deliver the most meaningful and relevant care. I, I have to think that we all in, in healthcare want to do right by the patients, but we seemingly cannot because of the way the healthcare system is designed. You know, here at the ACLC, we've been thinking a lot about that and this race to value. You know, there's there has to be a, a workforce development component where it's almost like you have to reskill and upskill the workforce to be able to think differently because we all go into 
medicine or healthcare with a very altruistic motive. And then we get into the, the, the machinery, the, the medical industrial complex that forces us to think in terms of E&M codes and billing units and whatnot. And as I think about this value-based care movement in workforce development, I think we have so much opportunity in being able to collaborate together as an industry to really improve outcomes for patients and honor their, their wishes and their dignity. I just, I think back to a JAMA study a couple of years ago, it, it showed that lay health workers who spend time on goals of care documentation, once a patient's diagnosed with cancer, it can reduce costs at the end of care $22,000. Okay, so having just a lay health worker really spending time with those patients to make sure that they're, you didn't have this level of rescue care that didn't honor the patient's decisions. It improves the quality of their life. And in, in those workers, in that particular study, they were doing something that was outside of their role in a fee-for-service world, you know, like where typically they would spend almost all their time on cancer screenings and treatment adherence and not really think about having these other types of documented discussions where you spend time with patients. So in, in thinking about workforce development, I really wanted to see what your thoughts are on, you know, how can we think differently about care design and provider workflows in a value-based environment so that we can truly improve care for our seniors? Do you have any advice for us here at the ACLC as we look to advance knowledge and education around workforce competencies for frontline workers? Well, I have opinions on just about everything as it relates to educating our United States citizens on care. And the reason I have that opinion is, is because every single one of us are going to need it. Every single one of us are on the same path of existence. We just, you know, get the luxury of a few more days here and a few less days there, depending on which way you look at it. One of the first things I think as a society we need to understand is, is, is that we're not educating our youth as to the real life expectancy. We tell people that are 16, 26, and 36 years old that the average life expectancy of a female in the United States is approximately 82 years old. They feel they got a lot of time to burn between 26 and 82. The reality is, is, is that they don't know what to do when they get close there to that 65, 75, 85 space. Nobody gives a class on getting old. It's not cool. It's not fun. It's not sexy. Nobody wants to take the class on wrinkles, gray hair, and dentures. But the reality is, is if you live long enough to experience any and all of that, you're probably closer to that 82, 85 number that we've all been looking at. So we need to start opening up our, what are called trade schools and Votech schools. We really need to dig deep and start giving education to our high school seniors and junior college individuals about aging, what it looks like, what to expect from the people in your family, the people that you know in your community, how to honor, how to appreciate, how to provide assistance, and how to prepare one's self for the inevitable. We additionally need to open up the medical schools to start rounding in assisted living, independent living, and memory care. We have some of the most amazing professionals in healthcare that are highly educated, more letters after their name and 16 years of medical school that can't discern the difference between home health, assisted living, and a skilled nursing. And to me, that should be part of their medical basis. 
where is our population going? Who are we going to be flooded with as far as patient care in the next 20 years? The geriatrics. And I've got a professional that I can call firsthand who can't tell me the difference between skilled nursing and assisted living. That to me is not serving our public. So education as a society needs to begin. We need to embrace the fact that life is life and part of life is death. And part of life is aging. And let's all, you know, kind of just take a moment and ponder that by accepting aging, we can do it better. And let's help our medical society get a little bit more educated on the real life aspect of aging, which is being part of an elderly community, seeing it firsthand, walking the corridors, spending a lunch with Fred and Diane and Marjorie, get to know what they deal with on a daily basis and you can serve your patient clientele better. I wanted to ask you a little bit more about, I mean, that's a great, great discussion, Carrie. And, and it got me thinking, you know, like how do we as a country understand aging better? And I recently saw a documentary on blue zones. You know, there's these certain zones in the world, like uh, in Okinawa or Sardinia, where they have the centurions, they, they live a long and healthy life. And there's such a, a level of awareness and understanding about aging. And, and it's accepted in a way that we just don't hear quite grasp. I mean, we, we kind of put it off, we compartmentalize it. Uh, and then when we get there, it's almost like, you know, we, we want to prolong life no matter what, but there's no real focus on quality. Just in terms of educating ourselves about aging, um, what do you think, do you have any ideas on ways we can learn from other countries on how to do this better? Well, I believe we can learn from several different countries. I mean, the Nordic countries have done an amazing job in aging. They still participate in life as far as an aging senior. They're still part of life. They're not as sedentary as some of the situations we see around the United States. That said, what if we flipped it? What if after the age of 70, you could go back to school, say the junior colleges? You know, what if we flipped it and said, um, Carrie, you're over 70 years old now. You can go to any of the junior colleges in your market for free as long as you participate in the cross-education and training and aging. And so part of my design is, is that I can go and take a class on you know, French language or history or whatever I want to do. But every other semester, I participate as an aging individual, sitting in on classes, answering questions with the younger population, giving them a clue into what it looks like to be aging. You know, what do I actually look like as an aging American? What's my background? What did I contribute to society? What am I contributing now? What am I learning now? What were my parents like? What kind of care processes do I expect in my world? And what am I looking forward to in my average next 10 to 12 years of life that's left to me? What am I doing? If I can start sharing my world with the younger population, we get in kind of an education circle with what comes before us becomes after us and then it keeps repeating and it keeps repeating. And if we could open up life to the elderly by giving their knowledge and their support, we would educate our youth as to what aging can look like and will look like if they live their average lifespan. That would be a suggestion that I could see happening very easily in some of the communities who embrace aging. Um, Loma Linda, California comes to mind. They have an amazing aging population and do a great job in supporting their elderly. Very similar to some of the Nordic countries that I've seen and uh, read on. 
And I think that if we were to embrace them back into the younger community, we would see the two generations start to knit together, honor each other, understand each other, and support each other. That's a great comment, Carrie, and I, I really appreciate that perspective. And what a revolutionary suggestion and insights that, that you're sharing. And I can really see how that could impact decision-making in healthcare in the industry as, as those younger people and grow up in a system where they have different understanding and expectations and priorities that have been influenced by really understanding the aging population better. I could see that definitely changing our healthcare infrastructure and our spending and having a great impact. I'm going to jump to another topic now, and it's another thing that currently you know, is becoming more prevalent and more thought of as a potential solution for how we provide better care to our aging populations. And it's about home-based care. And so recently there was a NACO survey and the results came out and showed that um, over 50% of ACOs reported that they're currently providing some home-based care to their populations with another 17% expecting to build out a home-based care or home visit program in the near future. I'm going to circle back to the, the story of my father-in-law one more time and just mention that this was a difficult challenge for us in that when he was supposed to be receiving palliative care, uh, he was told that he could go to the clinic for his pain management. And this is at a time when he had no desire or very limited physical ability to actually make it to the clinic. And, and this was the palliative care provider who was supposed to be helping him ease through his his challenges at this time. And, and we looked for a home-based program and we found one that said within 25 miles of the, the hospital system, they would do home-based visits. And my father-in-law was 26 miles outside of the hospital radius and uh, or, or 26 miles from the hospital, one mile outside of the radius. And, you know, it hit me as when I look at these numbers of ACLs reporting home-based care programs, you know, I still recognize that they might say they have a home-based care program, but in their service area, it's potentially still limited to whom it serves. So just thinking along those lines, what are your views on home care? What's going right with home care right now? Where do you see opportunities for improvement? How do you see ACOs taking advantage of that? And maybe what's your message for the, the 30% who still say they don't have plans for a home-based care program? It will grow. My opinion straight up is, is that that will grow because the moment that a physician walks into the patient's existence and sees their home, they are just smacked stupid with reality. They see that the best bathroom for bathing is on the second floor and we have an individual with lower extremity weakness and no ability to climb stairs. They see that the refrigerator is not stocked with healthy food. They see two, three, six cats all over the house sitting on the cannula for the COPD patient. They see reality and they see what's been deterring that patient from adhering to the plan of treatment, showing up for office visits, or for that matter, being able to exist with dignity. So we're gonna see this, but the reality of that NACO survey is, is that that's, that's just doctors visiting. That's not true home care. Home care begins with the individual. It begins with understanding that as we age, we lose ability. And a friend of mine, and somebody that I've gotten to know over the years, truly said it best. And I think that he deserves credit as a geriatrician when he goes out there and teaches and educates. And 
Bill Thomas is an amazing geriatrician. I haven't had a chance to listen to him on one of his TED Talks, take the time to do so. It's entertaining and it's truthful. But Bill said to me one day, he said, Carrie, truly home care, that of adding a person, not a physician, but a person to your space as an elderly individual is the same as becoming a prosthesis. As we age, we lose ability, just like an individual who might have lost an arm or a leg at a younger age. They've lost that appendage. Once you give them a prosthetic, they're able to walk again. They're able to hold a cup of coffee. They're able to comb their hair. Imagine if you looked at it in the same way as a physician and you said, my patient has lost ability. And now we add the prosthetic of home care, another human individual that subsequently makes them whole again. When ACOs can truly open their mind opportunity and effort to making their patient capable and whole again, they will embrace not just visiting doctors to the home and truly outside of a 25 mile radius, but actually within the confines of where they practice as a community, but they'll also add home care and they'll add an individual's ability to be whole again. So in the case of your father-in-law who fell one mile short from palliative care support, how can any system look at themselves in the eye, that mirror that morning when they get up and they write the confines and they write the basis of, of how their ACO is going to operate or how their program is going to operate, and they've drawn a line in the sand. We do not practice over that line. To me, they've short-sighted their ability to be part of a community of results, support, guidance, and just acknowledging that their client and their patient is a real human being. 26 miles away from their practice. They're still human, as human as a person who's 24 miles away, and they deserve the care that's being offered to them. Is there a, a line that one has to honor down the road? I mean, is 100 miles too far? Is 150 miles too far? No, it's not, because what you do, and I got to give this credit, I'm not name dropping, but there's some amazing people that I've learned from in this world. I got to give this credit to Charles Martin of Martin Ventures. And, and he sat up on a stage years ago in Tennessee and talked about blowing up hospitals. And he said, we just got to blow up the hospitals and return the physicians to the community. And when physicians are in their community, they're in all communities. And 26 miles is no longer an issue because Dr. Jones is in this community and Dr. Andrews is in that community and Dr. Chen is in the other community and the communities are served. So I say to ACOs, stop drawing lines in the sand, build out the opportunity, bring care to the home, add home care, add palliative care, and stop making the basis of mileage the definitive way by which you practice. That really touched me, Carrie, and the way you described that, and, and it connected with me. And as I, I think about my prior experience, the reason why I became an executive of an ACO years ago was because I, I took this trip to Cuba and I saw how the primary care physicians were embedded in the community. They were truly 
living in a part of the social fabric and, and visiting patients' homes and engaging them in meaningful conversations. And it was very patient-centered, even to the extent that the um, primary care physician would accompany the patient to a specialist visit. <laughs> it wasn't like anything I've seen. And you know that, that inspired me in a way that I, I wanted to get into health value. When, when I think about how we're going to do this and the current healthcare environment we have here in the United States, almost to the point, you know, that, that your colleague made, I mean, I, I don't want to advocate blowing up the hospitals. They have a role to play, but clearly things are shifting more towards ambulatory care and, and, and now care is even being delivered in the home. Now it's an incremental movement, but we're, we're getting there, I think, surely, but, you know, over time. But I, I want to think about, you know, just in this current environment, it's very fragmented and uncoordinated. You look at transitions of care, they're not managed effectively. I remember when I was leading an ACO once, and I had this hospital executive brag to me that they had the highest inpatient rehab utilization in the country. It was almost like a badge of honor. Funny. You know, like, because <laughs> they had these inpatient rehab facilities, and they were making a lot of money in a fee-for-service world. And, and you look at the, the veritability and costs across the post-acute care continuum, let's look at like a CHF patient, you know, they could go into a home health setting 30 days after discharge, 2,500 bucks, you know, a sniff might be $11,000 for admission. And then uh, inpatient rehab is going to be on the higher end, 15,000 plus. But I'm just thinking about how do ACOs and other risk bearing entities better manage variation in post-acute care costs due to the poorly coordinated functions as they exist now? Like, how do we improve that? Can you share with our listeners, Carrie, some success stories about, you know, other like post-acute care partnerships that you've seen that have truly optimized the full spectrum of care? Okay, so let's, let's start with, you know, the first thing about how can we get ACOs to work on a better transition for their patient? And I honestly will tell you that I think that the best thing that you can do for a patient, one is know who they are and what their support system looks like. Secondly, go to where they live. I mean, send somebody out into the community. Are they in a mansion? Are they in a double wide trailer? Are they in a, an apartment? Are they in a single family dwelling that they share with their uh, extended family? If you don't know where you're sending your patient by way of their recovery at home, how can you ever expect for them to get the quality outcomes that you're holding as part of their plan of treatment? I mean, talk about sending them out into the abyss, the great unknown. My goodness, if, if I want to change my outcomes in an ACO tomorrow, I start with a program of support that includes transition coordination. And transition coordination is not only the plan of treatment by way of are they going to a skilled nursing and then to home health, but it's where are they going to? What does the ultimate end of this transition look like? And what are the barriers to getting the outcomes and the rehospitalization avoidance that we're all seeking? Nothing worse than sending somebody with a backpack of supplies and then just kicking them out into the wilderness. You don't know if they're going to fall off a cliff or land into a nice little cozy area where they can set up camp. Let's find out where this trail leads, folks. I mean, come on. We've got the hospital site under control. We know which room they're in. We know which uh, wing they're on. We know which specialty physicians are part of their care, but we don't know what happens the moment they walk out of the hospital. And that in of itself, that mystery can be solved tomorrow 
by just putting people at the receiving end at the home site. So that's number one. I'll tell you that the success is really in, in the eye of the beholder, right? Everybody says shared savings is a success. Hey, we hit these markers. We got this great amount of shared savings. We were able to provide distribution in our physician ACO fat checks to these physicians who participated and they adhered to the plan and we hit our targets. Everybody's clapping, high fives all around and shared savings galore. Okay, that's one measure of success. But truly, was there a success of the overall intended achievement, which was better care for the patient? We've measured this and we've said that the hospitalizations are down. And we've said that we had timely initiation of care and that we made a difference by teaching and training to the disease process. You know, we look at the 33 measurables and, and we made some impact. Okay, once again, high fives, everybody's in a happy space. Who interviewed the patients? Who circled back with these patients and said, are you better? In some compilation of care, did you receive the outcome that you expected? Did you receive acknowledgement, training, and understanding of where you play a part in your disease process? And were you supported from the beginning to the end of your care intervention to your satisfaction? Because these are the people that have paid taxes into this government system that we call Medicare, by which ACOs exist. And if we're not making our patients happy, but we're just achieving shared savings, have we really done what's been asked of us to do? You know, that's a great question to, to think about. And every ACO executive that earns shared savings, I mean, their, their proclamation to the, the industry, like we were successful. But then is that truly the, the definition of success? You're right. And I want to share a success because you did ask me, have you seen success? The answer is yes. I have seen success as defined by shared savings. I have sat in the boardroom with the executives who proudly showed that last year under their very large ACO, this one happened to be a physician's ACO, that successfully they achieved millions of dollars in savings. And of the X number of physicians that were part of their group, each one of them were cut a shared savings check. And that to them in that moment as shared with me firsthand, was success. So to answer your question, yes, I've seen success. But have I seen the success as an individual person, as an American citizen, as a future Medicare recipient? Have I seen success as I would hope that it could additionally be measured? No, because I don't think anybody's measured it. I'm going to jump to another topic that you mentioned at the start when you were introducing yourself. It's kind of where you started your journey, and that was in the senior housing assisted living space. And so I want to circle back to that and talk a little bit about recognizing that senior housing is often less expensive, a less expensive alternative for a patient rather than a lengthy stay at a nursing home or even discharging with home health. Where do you see senior housing and assisted living fit? And have you actually seen any ACOs working with assisted living communities or partnering with those that perhaps that have lower rates of readmission? Well, this is a great space to talk about because truly I believe, as do many others that I've had the pleasure of knowing in the senior housing space, we honestly believe that we can make a dramatic difference 
in the area of quality outcomes for seniors when we incorporate senior housing, assisted living, and memory care communities into the space of aging and savings. So just know that there's a huge population of us out here in this that are cheering this on. All that said, in doing some look back to some of my information, and believe it or not, it goes back to that concept we were talking about earlier about educating the physicians to understanding what this space is. I'm going to jump around just a little bit here, but just for the point of making my point is that if acute care of 1990 is now the skilled nursing of today and the skilled nursing of 1990 is the senior housing of today, then it would make perfect sense that we would actually have individuals being educated on what senior housing is and what they're responsible for, what type of medical care they have in place, what kind of oversight that they have, and what part they play in the role of aging. So that would be kind of a, a simple understanding. But when I went back to some of my research and information that I had on hand, it was kind of funny because uh, it took me back to all the way to 2013 when there was an interview that came out of CALA, the California Assisted Living Federation. They're basically the, the trade organization for senior housing in the state of California. And there was an interview done with a gentleman just about getting into the ACO space. And this particular individual, his name was Todd Shetter, and he said the biggest challenge that they have was explaining to hospital groups and physician groups, insurance providers, what assisted living actually is going back to education again right so there's not too many people if any that i know of that are playing in the aco space because one they're not cms certified they're not part of the federal reimbursement they're generally private pay long-term insurance pays for these services families participate seniors save up for them medicaid pays for them but in the medicare space they're not really recognized and so they're not in the space of ACOs, to my knowledge. Now, there's a study out there that I haven't come across. If there's somebody playing in this space, please know. The first thing that I know getting up in the morning is that I'm going to be wrong six or seven times today. I just try to educate myself so I'm not wrong about the same thing twice. So if somebody has that and they want to shoot it to me, I'm sure we'll find a way to make that accessible. I'd love to know about it. But I, I do turn to a person that I've gotten to know over the years who I respect a great deal. And she is the CEO of Juniper Senior Living. Lynn Katzman. She's on the East Coast of the United States, very, very projecting forward, always thinking outside of the box, what can be done, how it can be done better. And Dr. Katzman, she has taken it upon herself and her team of professionals over there at Juniper, and they actually collect data. They put their frail seniors within their senior housing population through a special program that they have called Connect for Life. And they have already shown by their own data. I think the last study that came out of Senior Housing News said somewhere in the neighborhood of about 400 seniors that they had in this study that they were able to reduce the hospitalization rate. And if they were to put it to true numbers, so if they were to use kind of apples to apples numbers and compare their data with that of ACO type data, that they were able to basically on paper save approximately 3.75, almost $4 million in savings by way of avoiding hospitalizations and providing care in that assisted living location. Imagine this one study that was done by these fine people 
of their own choice, their own decision making, their own group of seniors, and, and truly going at the details of how they were able to avoid hospitalization and serve the senior in the location that they call home with the quality care provided under the assisted living and oversight and communication shared with the primary care physician that they believe that they would have saved approximately almost $4 million to Medicare if they had been included in an ACO type arena. But we're not. Senior housing, just to my knowledge, is not playing in that space. And there have been senior housing organizations that have got in and uh, coordinated their own Medicare Advantage program. And hats off to those folks. That's no easy lift. But they know that if they can get into the Medicare Advantage space, they can actually do some sort of a shared savings in their own right by utilizing the space of senior housing to benefit the patient under their Medicare Advantage plan. So these senior housing folks are very forward thinking. And I would truly encourage each and every one of you on this call and listening in to check out the American Senior Housing Association for some of the most forward thinking individuals in the senior housing space because they can talk to what's being done while Medicare has not embraced us as an organization or the individuals who support this space as a collaborative care entity. We certainly need to understand senior housing better as a healthcare industry. And there's so many moving parts here. And I wanna understand what your thinking is more about the future of hospitals and post-acute care. We're obviously, as a country demographically, we're having a silver tsunami where the shifting demographics are really gonna change the patient mix of American hospitals across the country. I mean, it's not too much of a stretch to say in the next decade or so, you know, we could have hospitals filling their beds with, with elderly patients with chronic disease exacerbations, where they become more like giant skilled nursing facilities instead of hospitals, and they're just receiving nursing care and drugs. And I'm just thinking about with the current cost and labor structure, you know, obviously that's not going to be financially sustainable for hospitals. You often hear hospital executives bemoan the fact that admissions for Medicare patients often doesn't cover the cost and they have to subsidize that with commercially insured patients and getting procedures. And so I'm really fascinated by how the the shifting of the demographics is going to change the landscape of organizations within the the healthcare delivery ecosystem. You know, in, in thinking about that also, are we going to start seeing a shift towards ambulatory procedures, things that are now I guess, performed in the hospital setting, things like, you know, mini orthopedic and general surgery cases, are they going to go into the, you know, ambulatory, you know, surgery center setting? And, and how, is, how does that all bear out? I mean, is the demand for traditional med surge beds going to decline significantly in light of some of these demographic shifts? So all that said, Carrie, I, I really am curious, what do you see as some of the inevitable changes in the healthcare landscape that's going to happen as a necessity due to some of the changing demographics that we're seeing in this shift to ambulatory care? And how do you think the home health industry also is going to change in the years to come to better address the changes in, in our country's demographics? What's going to change? Hospital at home, skilled nursing at home. I see that as a, as a future that's growing. It gets being tested. It's being evaluated, measured, not only for cost effectiveness, but quality outcomes and patient care. That exists today, and I see more of that coming. Mobile medicine, physician groups that are taking the care back to the home. No emergency room visit. You come in 
to the senior's home. You see them within an hour at their home setting. You're writing prescriptions. You're getting diagnostics. We used to say bedside, but now it's more recliner side, right? You're seeing me in my home and you're running a chest x-ray for that pneumonia symptoms or you're doing a, a check for stroke. You're looking at all my medications in the home. You're seeing everything that impacts me right here real time. So mobile medicine growing, growing and growing across the country and being invested in by uh, the Medicare Advantage players, being invested in by large companies like Walmart and CVS and Walgreens everybody's looking to do more outpatient medicine intervention. Do I see seniors living a life in a hospital? I personally don't. Once again, we're going to go back to, I'm going to be wrong several times today, but right now I don't see it because it's an extremely high cost medicine delivery. What I do see is, is I see individuals trying to push more medicine to the home setting. Telemedicine, as we've seen during COVID times, has taken off like wildfire. It has helped home health. It has helped uh, individual physician practices. It has helped specialty clinics. It has helped transitional care. I see the growth of telemedicine. Well, I see it tomorrow. I mean, honestly, we're not gonna see any going back and away from telemedicine. We're gonna see more utilization of it. We're also gonna see the ability to do remote patient monitoring to help us with telemedicine and to keep the patient in the home setting, getting the care that they need in the home setting without having to traverse into the hospital setting. You know, there was, there was a statement and, and I think an article that was put out uh, by one of the home health news organizations in which during COVID times, it was Spain that looked back on their initial reaction to the COVID experience in which they were pushing elderly patients towards the emergency room and saying, just, just go to the hospital, just go to the hospital. Um, oh, you're having symptoms, go to the hospital. And in retrospect, they found that of the people that were having somewhat quote symptoms, but they weren't in fact infected, they became infected when they went to the hospital. So we have to mitigate that type of a reaction in our elderly population because the moment that they cross the threshold, of the hospital setting, they are open to any type of other disease process that can be transmitted or a change in condition that is prompted just by going to the hospital. So we will see a push towards home medicine. What, you know, that, what was the saying? What was once old is new again. I think this is what Mr. Martin was referring to when he said this little statement about blow up the hospitals, which he did not mean. I got to go on record. He did not mean blow up the hospitals. He just meant the idea of what the um, ideas of hospitals have become. We gotta return medicine to the community and to the individual patient's home. So I see the growth of community medicine, hospitals at home, skilled nursing at home, the embracing of senior housing for a, a prompt, timely, appropriate initiation of supportive care, the absolute growth of in-home care support by way of care providers, certified nursing assistants, nursing individuals who can deliver skilled level of medicine, of hydration, um, oncology support in the home without the patient having to go to a hospital setting. I see the growth of all of these areas and thankfully it has been supported by the amazing findings in our technology partners across the world who are now able to say, you've got telemedicine, you've got remote patient monitoring, you've got Bluetooth devices, you've got wearables, you have the ability as a senior today to age in place, whatever you choose that place to be, but you do have that option 
thanks to medicine, technology, and the embracing of these platforms by the medical community as a whole. So it seems like if I'm a healthcare executive listening to this podcast, you know, I'd have to be thinking, maybe my health system needs fewer acute care facilities. And we really need to start thinking about truly being a system of health where we're embedded in the communities and we're engaging patients in the right setting to deliver higher value care. And so that's great food for thought, Carrie. And I really appreciate the commentary there. What if we looked at it like this, just for a second? Just, just for the sake of being that, if you are a healthcare executive, and thank you for doing what you do, but let's stop building monuments to medicine, and let's build a legacy of care. You can do that by thinking outside of the brick and mortar. There, there's another thing I wanted to ask you, Carrie. So you mentioned, you know, how can we better utilize technology? You know, telehealth, remote patient monitoring, Bluetooth, wearables there's this perception that seniors can't, they can't figure technology out. They don't know how to work the mouse. They can't log in, you know, to their Facebook. And I just don't think that's true. What is your thinking there? I mean, it's, I mean, surely the, the population that's, you know, the millennials of today as seniors tomorrow will, will get it. But, you know, are, are the seniors today really as dumbfounded by technology as what society often leads us to believe? I think it's a bell curve. Uh, I'll give you just a personal antidote. If I want to learn something in the space of technology, and I'm not a senior yet, but I'm on my way there, hopefully, I don't keep up with technology. I count on individuals to introduce me to it, and I have to carve out the time to learn it as it is applicable to what I need it for. I also have the pleasure of having as part of my friend group a 96-year-old amazing woman by the name of Helen in the state of Michigan who said to me not too long ago, hey, do you want to FaceTime this afternoon? I'm, I'm open. Okay. 96 years young and telling me she wants to FaceTime. And the last time I FaceTimed someone, it was by accident because I hit the wrong button on my iPhone. Okay. So everything is relative in the sense that what if we took that concept of, of taking our seniors and offering them the opportunity to go back to school at a no cost, low cost opportunity on all areas of technology? What if during the, the education year of 21-22, that as a senior this year, you can take no-cost education classes on technology, and you can take low-cost education on all other areas of interest. And then those no-cost classes, they were paired with younger students who could be that one-to-one -one tech buddy. I think everybody is capable of learning something. And... I think that it's just given a time and a space and a want and a need. Like I said, Helen can FaceTime like a pro. Now, is she an Excel spreadsheet wizard? Maybe not, but it wouldn't surprise me if she was because she has taken it upon herself to learn. Now, I have another family member who is extremely close to me who's not even close to Helen's age, and he's only 70-something, doesn't even carry a cell phone and has no interest in doing so for the rest of his life. Everything's relative. His world doesn't need it. And he sees if somebody wants to get a hold of him, they can call him on his landline, they can leave a note at his house, or they can come by and say hello. That's his choice. But seniors of tomorrow, and I'm, I'm going to project out just five years, the seniors five years down the road will not have the technology impairment that we believe we're seeing today. The leap forward in technology is for us as a population. And we've got seniors using Alexa. We've got seniors using their iPhones. We've got seniors hosting their own Facebook live chats. We've got seniors 
who are hosting their own podcast world. And they're doing it with excellence because it's of interest to them. And it will continue to be so. So no, I think that this is, this is a, a snapshot of time where the learning curve is just a little bit longer, but our seniors in Tomorrowland, they're ready to roll. And they're doing so because they're capable and they want to. And if I was a hospital executive, I would build out a plan to engage my seniors via tech today and be prepared for that tsunami to hit that tech side in no time at all. So Carrie, we've been talking about coordinating care being such an important part of an individual's journey through the aging process and recognizing that there are a lot of different places where they can receive that care and recognizing that uh, when we think about post-acute care, the network across the post-acute care continuum, it's essential for organizations and to help individuals successfully navigate that. At the ACLC, we wrote a white paper called the Coordinated Care Network or a vision for a coordinated care network. And in that paper, we said that the traditional definition of PAC or post-acute care represents a legacy of a fragmented approach to healthcare that segments care into silos and finances institutions to care for a slice of the patient instead of incentivizing whole person patient-centered care. In that white paper, we propose a framework for helping organizations think about transitioning to an integrated and coordinated care network model and, uh, and establish competencies for them to consider as they think about this approach to coordinate, better coordinating care. We focused it on three target populations, and this kind of ties back into that traditional definition of PAC not necessarily being the right definition or approach because the target populations include people transitioning from acute care, people who are advancing in illness and who don't necessarily need acute care or go to an acute care facility, and also people who are progressing through the final stages of life. So here's the question, as an industry, um, what can we do to support the urgent need for action to create more coordinated care and deeply rooted in the deep, that is deeply rooted in the leadership competencies necessary for bringing about this transformation of the post-acute care sector? Great question because it's lengthy and it gives me a lot of room to answer. So I like that. Thank you very much. All right. I'm very familiar with this paper. It's actually one that I've shared many times in discussing opportunities in in care collaboration. It's one that I use as kind of an inroad to say, let's talk about this, and then maybe we'll understand if we're aligned in our goals and opportunities. The reason why I refer to this paper is, is because in that same paper, there's a visual, and this being a podcast moment, we're not going to get a chance to see it, but at the very core of this visual, and just imagine, you know, circles with uh, circles around them, and, and then there's this core layer. The core layer is the person, the individual patient served by the network and their physiological and psychological state. Just imagine that for a second. If, if you went into anything that was important to you and you had to have an understanding of the psychological state of the patient before you did anything related to their possible care or their ability to rehabilitate with what ails them. And we talked about that earlier in the discussion about just knowing your patient. You know, the the second area as far as uh, the visual on this is, is the inner layer. And that is understanding the patient's status, their goals and their preferences and what drives their experience. And then we get into the support system and the enabling of self-management 
in the care and the rehabilitation and the outcomes. And then uh, the third layer being the whole person health. So we've kind of defined this as that the patient is always at the center. And we say that. And in the collaborations, we say that. We all mean it. And, and, and we believe good intent that the patient is at the center. But when current operations as they are today are, it, as you said, in silos, who's doing the follow-up? When I hand off that patient from acute to the skilled nursing or to the home health, is there anybody really going backwards and giving updates and information and detail as to the outcome of that patient in their next setting? Also earlier in the conversation, we talked about getting them set up for success. It's great to have a pathway, but who carved the path? Is there anybody on this team of collaboration today who is willing to go into the unknown and get in front of that patient's journey and see what it's gonna look like before they get to that next step. So I'll use myself as a patient to say, I'm gonna discharge from the hospital today and I'm gonna to go to skilled nursing. Pre-COVID times, let's be in a perfect realm here. I'm gonna to go to the skilled nursing. And how long am I expected to be at that skilled nursing? What is my plan of treatment expected to be at the skilled nursing? And who is involved in my pre-discharge planning from day one? I should always be ahead of my patient. And then when I'm ready to discharge from that skilled nursing, am I going home with home health? Is it a transition plan? Have I met my coordinator of transition with home health before I left the skilled nursing? Who's gonna be my buffer in that 48 hour possible waiting period of when home health will get started? Who is setting the pathway ahead of the patient who's going to be the one on the path? So, the reason I bring that up is, is because we keep talking about what is, and this is what is. We are in silos. We've come together in a collaboration, an ACO, a bundle, an agreement with value that's related to our shared savings or our payday somewhere down the road. But is anybody just carving out a path for the patient? And could we not do that by way of our supportive care entities and medical social work? palliative care, hospice benefits, home care, home health, these individuals who are already in the community. So with that white paper, we found some amazing information in there. And thank you for putting that out. I want to understand your views on how seniors are viewed in today's society. It often seems like, and we mentioned this earlier in our conversation, that our country really doesn't and it's not that we don't appreciate seniors, but it's almost like we're programmed to ignore them. We value youth. And then once you're, you become of, of age and enter into the, the senior world, it's almost like we as a society want to just kind of put you in a safe place and, and wish you the best. But we don't really engage actively, you know, our senior population and, and honor their place in society. So can you share with me some of your thoughts on how as a country we can better connect with the senior population to truly honor who they are as individuals? So Eric, I think that you brought up a, a very interesting question as it relates to geriatrics, the senior population, and where they fit into society. And I can only tell you, actually we had a conversation, you and I, about this some time ago, in that I began to notice as I got deeper into the geriatric world, worked into the 
geriatric space and home health care and placement and senior housing that when I was in the community and I was, you know, out and about in my everyday world, just going to the grocery store or something simple like that. I am an individual just born this way where I make eye contact and smile at people and I'm just happy to be here and I'm filled with joy and I'm just looking to say hello. But when I try to make eye contact with seniors, especially senior women, they look away or they look down. And it was such a shocking experience. And it, it just jumped out at me that I, I actually went on a purposeful just change of how I'm going to do my day. I, I sought out opportunities to try and make eye contact with seniors. And overwhelmingly, I noticed this looking down, looking away, avoiding eye contact, because I believe from my personal experience that as a community and as a country, through the way that we look at youth and we award youth and we celebrate youth and we are always trying to, you know, stay younger and be younger and, and, and put that out there as a marketing campaign to society, that our seniors have begun to accept being invisible. And as a person, I say, that's not okay. Because if I'm going to learn from anybody in this world, it's going to be from somebody who's been here 20, 30, and 40 years longer than me, not from a person who just looks like they've been 20 years younger than me. I want to learn and know from experience. And I would love for our seniors in this community and in this society to walk proud, look forward, and engage the younger population with that of having been there, done that, and willing to discuss it. So if anybody has got a little bit of a, an issue with where change can be made in this society, I say embrace a senior, know a senior, talk to a senior, learn from them, have a cup of coffee. Ask them who they are, not what they used to be but who they are as an individual in this American society. And I think you'll find out that there's some pretty amazing people that are sitting to the left and the right of you that just happen to have a few more wrinkles, gray hair, but they got a story to share and they got an experience to deliver. And we just don't know it anymore because we've looked away from our senior population. So let's make a change there. Powerful words, Carrie. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I know our listeners would really appreciate that. I, I think that would be maybe the the best way to end this episode. Is is there anything else that, that you would like to discuss before we uh, we close it out for today's podcast? Well, I truly want to thank each and every one of you at the ACLC. You folks have done nothing but collect data, promote conversation, build out opportunities for those of us in different lines of care to collaborate, share ideas, find ways to engage our communities for better care of not only seniors, but those of us that are behind them by a couple of decades, ready to be seniors someday. And just know that when you open up dialogue and you share data, each and every one of us has an opportunity to come away with a new way of doing something for the better of all of us. And so to those of you at Levitt Partners and the ACLC, I say thank you for allowing us to build out a better aging. 
Thank you, Carrie, so much for, for joining us today at Race to Value. It has been an absolute pleasure spending time with you today. And I feel like I am now so much more knowledgeable about uh, geriatric care and, and all the different components that, and what it takes to deliver higher value care. For our listeners out there that want to learn more and learn more about Right at Home, how can they best engage? Well, I will give a plug to the amazing folks over at Right at Home in that I have the pleasure of being part of their team. And we are going to be launching our own podcast. So in the not too distant future, please look for us around the August 2020 timeframe. Go to your podcast app, look for the Right at Home podcast, and you will find us listening, learning, and being part of the education around all things aging. And I believe that together we'll continue to talk, learn, and share. And I think that's the best thing that we can do for any of us in the aging world today.